John chapter 20, I asked that Braden would read verses 19 through 25. I'm going to be preaching through 19 through 23. I thought that I would actually get to Thomas. But there's something in verse 23 that just grabbed me. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. What in the world is going on? We're going to decide, we're going to figure that out today. Because we've finally gotten to the good part. Chapter 19 was all about the death the trial of Jesus, and we've come to chapter 20, waiting for the resurrection. Oh, We were amused at the foot race to the empty tomb, and we could have marveled at the misery of Mary over the loss of her beloved Jesus, but we were really just wanting to get to the good part. You know, the part where Jesus magically appears and starts doing stuff again, and we finally got here. But this vignette from today is just a continuation of the events that began to unfold, that began being told to us in verse 1 of chapter 20, which says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the empty tomb, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. It was the first day of the week which was the seventh day in that recreation account that God, through John, has given us in this gospel. God created everything in six days, and he rested on the seventh day. God, through Jesus, recreates everything in six days and rests on the seventh day as well. Before we begin to unpack our verses from today, I want to make sure that we understand the importance of that seventh day of that day of rest, because we need to understand the meaning of the seventh day, the day of rest. God started this section of his gospel with, now on the first day of the week. And here in our text today, when we finally get to the good part, it also begins with, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week. There is a significance to all of this and importance as to why these details are given to us. We need to understand the meaning behind the seventh day. We legalistically think that God did nothing on the seventh day, that that is the meaning behind rest, that his resting meant that he didn't work, he did nothing but stay at home and rest. And the religious Jews had come up with specific statutes as to what a person could do on the Sabbath and what they could not do. There were hundreds of laws with subsets of those laws that tell you what you were prohibited from doing and what you could do. They had even decided how many steps you could take in a single direction before it became work. That's a half a mile in case you're interested. And all these laws and rules came from that fourth commandment, as found in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, which tell us, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days Yahweh made heaven and earth and sea and then all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This command to rest was and is countercultural. Well, at least it was. Because man is greedy, and we are very full of ourselves. And we think that the world revolves around us, that the earth revolves around us, and that our business won't survive without us. That if we're not working, others are getting ahead of us in that race for position, for wealth. 
And, but God created man in such a way as to show us that he doesn't need us, that we need him. We are created in such a way that you have to do something every single day. You have to sleep. And a human will, add, will spend on average about one-third or more of their, of their lives completely comatose. And if you're a parent, you know that they do most of that from the time they're about 12 to 17 or 18. But the fact is, is that we spend so much of our lives, a third of our lives, completely comatose, not even aware of those things that we are so striving after, those other two-thirds of our life. We're forced to sleep. And if you think that you're not forced to sleep, try not to. You'll see how far you get with that. And this is a gift from God to prove to us that the world does not revolve around us. And we have to eat as well. And everything that we eat only grows because of God. We can plant, we can sow, and we can water, but it's God that makes things grow, 1 Corinthians 3. And in an agrarian society, which most cultures were up until about 150 years ago, the amount of work that you put into your land or your animals had a direct on effect on how much money you made. So the command to not work an entire day every seven days, that was revolutionary. And not necessarily in a good way in their minds which is why the Jews came up with those specific laws and those subsets of those laws as to what was work and what was not. Because men were always trying to find a workaround to that Sabbath rule. But if we focus on the verses surrounding the command to keep the Sabbath, because the Lord rested from his work, we can determine what it means that he rested from his work and even means what it means for us to rest from our work. The Sabbath rest was always about remembering God. Remembering that he is the one that created everything. That we, everything that we are and everything that we own. Remembering and honoring him as holy. Which is why we gather as the church. Can you listen to a service on a radio? Watch it on TV or the computer? Sure. Can you sing songs as we did as you fish or play golf on a Sunday? Sure. But are you remembering God and keeping the Sabbath day holy? No. Verse 8 of Exodus 20 is that command. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And verse, tell it, verse 10 tells us when we are to keep the Sabbath day. The seventh day is the Sabbath to Yahweh your God. And found between these two verses is what we should be doing the other six days and even what we should be doing or not doing on the seventh day. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. And then we're told what it means that God rested on the seventh day in verse 11. For in six days Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them. God completed the work of creation in those six days. There was nothing left to create. He had finished the work that he had set out to do. And so he stopped and he enjoyed the work that he had done. He rested. And God desires us to come together with those in our covenant community and rest. To rest in him as we worship him, as we adore him, as we remember him. And you may be sitting there thinking, there you go again, David. You're taking license with the word of God. I, I get that Sabbath rest thing, but then you throw in this whole covenant community and being part of a church. Come on, where are you getting this from? Well, listen to a couple of verses, just a couple of verses from the book of Hebrews. Chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, and then chapter 13, verse 7. Chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's chapter 10. Then chapter 13, verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. 
Consider the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. You cannot be keeping the Sabbath day and remembering God, seeing Him as holy, and not obey His word at the same time. And you cannot obey Scripture, such as these three verses from Hebrews, and not gather together in corporate worship. When? You're keeping the Sabbath to Yahweh, your God. We're told in Mark 2, 27, that Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, and man, not man for the Sabbath. And all of this talk about the Sabbath, the seventh day, it all ties in with our verses from our text today, and even what the title of this sermon is. I don't know if you guys saw the title of the sermon on that little handout. Who and not what? What Jesus was saying in the Mark account is that the Sabbath was given to ensure that people lived balanced lives. Because we work too much. We eat too much. We strive after the wrong things. And the Sabbath was instituted to force us to stop and rest from our labors. It was given us to stop and force us to focus on the truly important things in life. And those things are a who, not a what. God rested after the first creation, but that doesn't mean that he was inactive, that he was taking a vacation from his creation, because it was all finished. And in the recreation week, God rested as well. And chapter 20 is all about that Sabbath day in that recreation week. And God is resting but as we will see, he's not on vacation. He has not set things on autopilot and is now just sitting back reading a magazine. He has completed the work. It is finished, as he said. And on our verses today, we will see the outcome of it being finished. Verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Now, as a side note, for those who are trying to determine what day of the week the Sabbath is, what day the church is supposed to meet as a body, verse 19 should be a watershed verse for you. Here, the church is meeting. And it was the seventh day. It was Sunday. And that first meeting of the church started out as anything but holy or glorious. Think about this, guys. These men have seen the empty tomb. They have seen those burial clothes. They have had the women come to them, not just once but twice, and tell them that they have seen and been spoken to by angels at that tomb. And Mary, who was not alone at the time, is told to us in Matthew 28, she had witnesses to the truth that she wasn't hallucinating or a whack job when she came and told these men just a few hours ago, I have seen Jesus. He's risen. He's no longer dead. And he's not a ghost. And he's not an angel. He was alive. And he had given them specific instructions. Go to Galilee and there you will see me, Matthew 28.10. And even what he was doing, I'm ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God, John 20, 17. And the disciples were hiding behind locked doors, fearing what men might do to them. And we should rightly wonder, how could they be so off base? And at the same time, we should wonder how we can be so off base because we read this verse and we scoff at those disciples thinking to ourselves what cowards why didn't they believe why didn't they listen to the lord why didn't they focus in on him and not the things of the world or the men of the world and then we focus in on a locked door we make these wild speculations about the resurrection body of Jesus and what we're going to be able to do in our resurrected bodies. That's why this verse is here. Oh, he walked through a locked door. 
I'm going to be able to walk through walls. He was able to move through that time-space continuum. I'm going to be able to do this too. I can't wait. It's going to be epic. We mock these men for focusing on the earthly and not the spiritual. And then we do the very same thing of ourselves. And heaven will only be heaven because God is there. And we, in our resurrected bodies, will not wonder at what we can do in them. We will wonder at what he has done in them. Because we will be as he is. Perfect, spotless, holy. And if you're not enthralled with the word now, if you're not enthralled with God now, what makes you think that you're going to be enthralled with either of them then? And this verse is not focusing on a door, locked or otherwise, but a promise made and a promise kept. We're told in chapter 1 of this gospel, verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And then in chapter 14, during the upper room discourse, the meal that just had happened a few days ago, when Jesus told these men that he was going away, there he said this, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Verse 8, and he kept his promise. He always keeps his promise. And even more important than that locked door or those cowering men is what it was that Jesus said to them. Peace be with you. And this too is a keeping of promise made to these men in chapter 14. Because the very next thing that he promised these men, after promising that he would come to them, was this. He said to them, yet in a little while, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And they saw him. And now you can understand why Jesus could give them this greeting. He said to them, peace. But not just peace, as if it were a wish or a desire. He said to them, peace be with you. He is their peace. And there he stood. A man that should not be there. He was dead. He had promised that he would die, and he did. He had been proclaimed to these men, described to them as a Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, beginning from uh, chapter 1, verse 29. They had been witnesses to that conversation with Nicodemus when Jesus told them that he would be lifted up like the snake in the wilderness. And he was lifted up before their very eyes. And all the prophecies concerning the Messiah had been born in his body, in his life, and in his death. And now, there he stands. Peace be with you. And when he, showed them, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. We need to understand verse 20. It's not given us to tell us that as Jesus stood there in their midst and declared peace to them, that they didn't believe that it was him. So he showed them the scars in his hand and, this, and in his side as proof that he was actually who he claimed to be. Verse 20 is an explanation of the truth given to us in Isaiah chapter 53, 5, which tells us he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wound we are healed. He declared peace to these men. And then he showed them the why that he was their peace. Not the what of the peace. He showed them the price paid for their peace. He could declare to them peace because of his chastisement. And that the wounds, by his wounds we are healed. And this was the meaning behind showing them his scars. It was the promise kept 
of him telling them that because he lived, so also they will live. It was a promise kept that in that day, they would know that he is in the Father and that they were in him and that he is in them. He had promised to turn their grief into rejoicing. John chapter 16, verses 20 through 22. He said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. And when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being was born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. And after showing these men his scars, after they saw them, they rejoiced. And our text indicates something to us that we need to understand. It says that after they saw his scars, they were glad when they saw the Lord. Because there's a difference between seeing and seeing. Mary, earlier in that day, had seen Jesus but not seen him. Verse 14, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. He had been standing before them, before they saw his scars, and they didn't see him. But it was after he showed them the scars that they were glad, that they rejoiced. It was then that they saw him. He had been standing before Mary, and she didn't see him until he called her by name, verse 16. How could this be? Was Jesus, like, metamorphosizing himself? Was, you know, just changing what he looked like? No, it's because Jesus is a who and not a what. Mary had been looking for a dead man. She was looking for a corpse, somebody to mourn over. These men were not looking for the risen king. They were cowering behind closed and locked doors because of that dead man, the one that they had not been looking for earlier in the day. The joy that he promised these men in those chapter 16 verses was not a what. The peace that he proclaimed to these men is a who and not a what. And this is the difference between seeing and seeing. And how you see will determine if you truly know the peace that he promised to you or not. How you see will determine if you can rejoice in him living or not. If you can know that the Father is in you and that you are in him and that he is in you. See, there's this saying that floats around Christianity. It goes something like this. Um, you're just too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good, which is implying that your focus is on eternity too much. And because of that, you're just not worth anything here. But the reality is, though, until you focus on heaven, you can be no earthly good. Until you stop focusing on the things of God, the things that he has given you, those things that he has given you to use, the good things of this world, until you stop focusing on Eve and start focusing on the Lord, you cannot truly see. And you can't see that Jesus is not a what? He's not a body. He's not a corpse as these men in that upper room thought that he was. And he's not a genie in the bottle as so many of us think of him. Jesus is a who. And that who is God. And those scars prove it. And they were glad when they saw the Lord. Understanding that Jesus is a who and not a what then sheds, sheds light on verse 21. and makes sense of it. In it, Jesus then one more time says to them, peace be with you. Or literally, peace is with you. And then he tells them, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And this is part and parcel of being a Christian. If you are in him and he is in you, then his mission is your mission. Your life is no longer your own. Any more than his life was his own. 
And what was his mission? What was his purpose? He said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, John 6, 38. Flip over with me uh, to 2 Corinthians 5. Run right just a bit. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 17 through 21 so we can get a good grasp on what Jesus means here when he says, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. 2 Corinthians 5. Verse 17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. So the first thing we have to ask ourselves, are you in Christ? If so, then you're a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And this reveals the issue that many of us have. Because we think that we're saved for ourselves. That Christ came to give us our life and our life more abundantly. That the things that are at our fingertips, those things that taste so yummy, that please our eyes so much, that our flesh loves to the core, those things are the reason that we are saved. So that we can enjoy them now. And then we get to go to heaven. Get off scot-free for the sins that we create and do. And this is seeing, but not really seeing. This is thinking of Jesus as a what and not a who. And this is, what we, this is not what we are in that new creation. Listen to the rest of those verses from 2 Corinthians 5. Verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We can get the first part of that verse pretty easily. We can get that Christ reconciled us to the Father, and we actually like that part of that verse. But the second half, that part we seem to get kind of fuzzy on. But lucky for us, God understood the human condition and had Paul clear that up for us in verses 19 and 20. When he said, that is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting us with the message of reconciliation. Verse 20, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The last sentence of verse 20 is the ministry of reconciliation that we have been made part of. It is the speaking out of it, the working out of it. It's just that simple. Ten words. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is the ministry of reconciliation that we have been given. This is what Jesus meant when he said, As the Father sent me, I am sending you. And this is the explanation of verse 21 of 2 Corinthians 5, which tells us, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you are in him, then you have become, you have become the righteousness of God. Isn't that shocking? And we don't see ourselves as this because we see Jesus as a what and not a whom. We see him as a leg up, a way out, a help when we need it. But we don't see him as he is, God incarnate. Because if we did and when we do, then we will begin living the life that we've been given in him. We will begin speaking those ten words. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We will then begin to live in the peace that he is, the joy that he is. And when we do that, because we have done this, then we will understand verses 22 and 23 of our text today. Flip back over to John 20 with me. Verses 22 and 23 of John 20. 
And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. After giving the disciples the call to action, their marching orders, that, that just as he has been sent, they also are being sent, he now empowers them to be sent. He breathed on them. And the word that is translated as breathed or blew on them is the same word that is used in Genesis 2-7. It tells us, when Yahweh God formed the man from dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And then he told them, receive the Holy Spirit. And this one verse has sparked controversy. Did the giving of the Holy Spirit happen here? Or does it happen, as we're told in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4? Where there we read, on the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven the sound of a, like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared on them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterances. Or maybe there are two baptisms of the Holy Spirit. One to save you, and then one to empower you. The first one, that's just for those casual believers. The second one, that's for the ones that are serious. And that's evidenced by the fact that you speak in tongues. Could that be it? And the question we have to ask is, why did John put this in his gospel? After all, the book of Acts was already written and is already being widely read before this gospel was written. So why would he write something that would be so confusing? Well, he wrote it because he was directed to. And he was directed to by, wait for it, the Holy Spirit. He wrote it because it happened. And he wrote it because it is the climactic end of this gospel narrative that echoed the original creation week. It echoes and completes the creation week of Genesis 1 and 2, when God breathed life into man. It fulfills the Ezekiel 37 illusion that was given, the valley of dry bones. He wrote it because the same person that brought those dry bones back to life was the same person who was now being given and who would do the work that Jesus came to do. The same work. Establish his body as a ministering agent to the world. This event helps explain the life that we are given in Christ. It's not just for us, but it's for him. And we are saved from the wrath that we deserve. We understand that, but we are also saved for the work that we don't deserve. This event that we are witness to, the one in this account, is the birth of the thing that we are part of. The thing that Jesus promised to his disciples. The thing that he said that the gates of hell will not prevail against. Here, the birth of the church is revealed to us. And this event demonstrates to us the triune nature of God working in his church. God the Father sending the Son. God the Son coming and living and dying and then living again. And God the Spirit regenerating and empowering the word that was written in the lives of those he has given life to. And this event demonstrates to us how we, the church, through the power of the Holy Spirit, are given the rare privilege are participating in the ministry of reconciliation. Do you hear that? We are given a rare privilege. No one else is given this privilege of participating in the ministry of reconciliation. How we get to participate in the ministry of God. Not got to do this. We get to do this. And this event demonstrates to us that miraculous moment when the church became both the recipient and the minister of the renewing work of God. But what really happened here? And what about the Acts 2 account? 
Because there in Acts, the disciples actually did something. They had miraculous manifestations happen. They spoke in tongues. Is this the second blessing that we hear so much about in those Pentecostal circles? This is important. This is really important because it all ties into the theme of our sermon today. Who and not what? Jesus promised the giving of the Holy Spirit to these men. And with that promise came many of the same things that were mentioned here in our verses. John chapter 14, verses 23 through 27. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and the Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. And then again in John chapter 16, verses 12 through 15, he says, I still have many things to say to you, but, I can't bear, but you can't bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you all the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Those that try to separate the events that happened in our verses today from that which happens in Acts 2. Do so because they see the Holy Spirit as a what and not a who. They may not admit this. They may not even consciously think this, but their words and their actions prove that this is case. They think that they can give the Holy Spirit, that it's an it, that once you get it, it kind of acts like that power plant in the chest of Tony Stark. It's the something that is used to prove that you're saved. It's the thing that you use to empower your ministry. It's your superpower if you receive the power of the second blessing. And they can give it. And they do this by smacking people on the forehead or waving their magical arms and people fall down and convulse on the floor. And those that do that are, are empowered and they bark like dogs, cluck like chickens, laugh like a maniac, speak in gibberish, all by the Holy Spirit who was given to them. And that's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a who that cannot be dissected from or separated from the Trinity of God. He was involved in the creation of the universe, Genesis 1-2. He was involved in the making of the man in the image of God, as told to us in Genesis 2-7. And in Psalm 33-6, we're told, By the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. Jesus promised the Holy Spirit back in chapter 14, verse 16. And there he said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. And in that verse, we are given the truth of the Trinity, the triune nature of God, three persons, separate but equal, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Back in Psalm 33, 6, it, that tells us, Yahweh made the heavens by his word. John 1, 1, beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And it was this word that asked the Father, who then says that he will give these men and us another helper. And the word that is used there for helper in the Greek, it's written, it's actually paraclete, which means helper or counselor. But Jesus didn't just say that he would ask the Father and the Father would send a helper or a counselor. He said that he would ask the Father and the Father would send another helper or counselor. You can't have another without a first. You can't eat a ha another hamburger if you don't eat a hamburger first. You have to have a first to have another. Jesus is the first paraclete. He's the first helper, the first advocate, the first counselor that the Father sent. 
And the second helper, advocate, counselor, was actively involved in the sending of that first counselor, the first advocate. Mary was told this when she said, How is this possible that me, a virgin, how am I going to have a child? She was told, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born, will be called Holy, the Son of God, Luke 1.35. We know that those that look to Jesus as a what? Those that come to him for only what they can get out of him, what he can, what he can do for them, we know that they are in perilous trouble. But the same has to be said of those who view the other paraclete in the same manner. Those that view him as a what and not a who. Who seek after what they can get and not who they are given. They preach and hold to another gospel. A false gospel. And we are, under, we are, in, we are intended to understand that the giving of the Spirit here in our verses from today are tied in with, are intimately linked to the work of the first paraclete. Was the Spirit given here? Yes. You should answer that unequivocally. Yes. Was the Spirit given as told to in Acts chapter 2? Yes. Are they separate events? Yes. But it's the same Spirit. And in the Acts 2 account, is no different or more empowering than here. To fully understand this, you must hang on to the doctrine of the Trinity and use it as the filter that explains these events. The two givings of the Holy Spirit are the one promise that Jesus made to his church. The promise that would happen because of his hour. And these two givings of the Holy Spirit are tied in with the final events of that hour. The resurrection, here, and the ascension, and then Acts 2. In one, we're intended to see the working of the triune God and the resurrection of Jesus. In the other, we're intended to see the working of the triune God in the ascension. One to victory, and the other to sovereignty, as the theologian John Westcott put it. But you may be sitting there having trouble getting, making sense of all this. How, how could there be two givings of the same Holy Spirit? How can they be the same? They're different. Once again, the Bible's here to the rescue. How many gospel accounts are there? Anybody? Four. How many true gospels are there? One. The four gospel accounts are all different manifestations of the same gospel truth. None reveal a part of Jesus that is different than the other. None empower you more. They just relate the triune God in a more full way because they each magnify God in a different light. They are the light that shines on the jewel that is being turned to radiate the magnificent of it for us. And the same is true of the two givings of the Holy Spirit. Still not convinced that this is the truth? Well, let's look at verse 23 for, for clarification. Jesus said, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And at first blush, this verse does nothing to, hear, to clear up this controversy between the Acts 2 giving of the Spirit and what happens here. In fact, if anything, it makes it worse because it, now it seems like Jesus has just given the car keys to the children. It's like he's made the inmates of the asylum in charge. In less than five verses, these men have gone from being cowardly, cowering sinners to now being able to forgive forgiveness. And not just within themselves, but for the Lord. What gives? Verse 19, Jesus came and said, peace be with you. And that peace was not was a who and not a what. And then he showed them his hands and his side and they rejoiced and he said to them, Peace be with you. Jesus is a who and not a what. They were looking for a what. They were looking for a dead man, a body, maybe a ghost. 
And all of those things are a what, not a who. They had been promised peace and joy. And they were expecting these things to happen in a what and not a who. They thought that peace would be something that they felt. That his joy would be found in the things that they are given, that they possessed. They didn't understand that the peace and the joy that was promised them was not found in things. Not in a what. It was found in a who. And it's found in and flows through the second person of that Godhead, Jesus. And I began by telling you that this was the first church service. That the church was gathered in that upper room. And you thought of that as a what? But Jesus in verse 21 told the church, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. We think of the Great Commission, we think that that's given to us in the Gospel of Matthew, verse 20, chapter 28, when Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We think that's the Great Commission, and it is. But it's no less the Great Commission than what we read in verse 21. And you wonder why we've never heard this text, this command by Jesus as being referred to as a great commission? Why aren't there ministries centered around this? Because it's much too specific. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. Those Matthew verses are much less direct. And there's a lot more wiggle room has been evidenced by the mere fact that less than 10% of all professing Christians ever, ever have shared their faith. Can I ask you, have you shared your faith? Not with someone who proclaims to be a Christian, but with a non-Christian. I compel you on behalf of Christ Be reconciled to God. We rationalize that great commission as being, well, it's kind of out there, you know, in the mission field. Some hot, muggy place where people don't speak the same language as me. And I'm not called to the mission field. I'm just called to be here, to be a good Christian here. But when you understand verse 21 for what it is, the same great commission is that of Matthew 28. Well, verse 21 has got a much bigger bite. As the Father sent me. How did the Father send Jesus? Where was his mission field? What was his life centered on, built around? Doing the will of his Father who sent him. John 4, 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. What's our food? John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and as my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of whom, him who sent me. What's our will? John 6.38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And to whom was it that, that Jesus was sent? To a foreign people? John 1.11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. You wonder where your mission field is? Now you understand why this verse is not plastered on the walls of houses. Why it's not plastered on the walls of church or ministry buildings. And we who hold to Reformed theology claim to believe that salvation is all of God, simply because the Bible tells us so. But do we, who hold to this Reformed theology, Are we willing to take this great commission and place ourselves under it? Do we see this as the command that it is? That church, the original church that was meeting in that upper room was given the great commission by a who and not a what. 
And then the empowerment of the church was given to the church. Verses 21 through 22. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I am sending you. And then he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. The who, that is the second person of the Godhead, then tells these men how they can do the impossible. He gives them the who of the third person the God of the Godhead, the Spirit. And this then reveals the fatal, the fatal flaw in our theology, the Achilles heel in our thinking. Because we think that the church is a what and not a who. What? We think that the church is a what and not a who. Most of us until recently have even thought that your church was a building. We would call this building the church. I'm going to church. When we said we we're coming to this building, didn't matter if anybody's here or not, I'm going to church. But even if that error in our thinking has been corrected, we now call the body of believers that meets together the church instead of the building, we still think of the church as an it and not a who. But this is not how the Lord sees the church, not how he calls it, 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. Romans 12, 4 through 5. For just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Colossians 1, 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Ephesians 5.23, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. 1 Corinthians 10.16.17, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the, in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, who we are many, who we are many of, are one body, for we partake of one bread. In Ephesians 20, uh, 5, 29 and 30, for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church because we are members of his body. This is the seventh day, the day that God rested from all his work, and Jesus can hand over the reins of the heavenly to these men because they are not a building. They're not even a gathering of individuals. They are his body empowered by his spirit to do his will. And now you can understand how Jesus could tell these fatally flawed men, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now you can see how God rested on the seventh day and at the same time was not inactive. The work of salvation had been completed by God. The Father sending the Son, the Son living for the Father and dying for the elect. The Holy Spirit regenerating and illuminating the lives of the elect of God. How does all this line up with your understanding of the church? The one that you think of such importance, unimportance that is, that you wonder whether or not you need to join it. The one that you think of is such unimportant that you casually decide if you're going to pour into it or not. The one who's been so maligned by those that are supposed to be members of it that the importance of the church has not been taught or demonstrated to you. Jesus is not a what. The Spirit is not a what. And the church is not a what. This is the body of Christ his physical manifestation to the world and for the world. And we're quick to point out, 
oh, we are so quick to point out the heresy and blasphemy of those that would try to rob uh, Jesus of his lordship. We will call out the Mormons and JWs as a cult for this reason. And we're quick to point out the heresy and the false gospel of those prosperity folks, those that treat the Holy Spirit as a what and not a who. But are we as quick, are we as willing to do the same thing that with those that don't, that do this with the body of Christ? Well, you can spot them just as easy as you can spot a Mormon or the prosperity gospel folks because they treat the holy as unholy. They don't rightly teach and they don't hold the scripture. They don't require church membership. They don't teach the importance of the church and they don't do church discipline. You want to see whether or not a church is truly a faithful church? You ask them, how many members do you have on your rolls? And then you look around at their congregation. If they're not doing church discipline, they are not treating the church as holy. They are more concerned about the size of the building rather than they are the health of the body. They treat the church like it's not special, like it's not set apart, like it's not holy. And they are the people that are willing to bounce from body to body until they get to, to find one that makes them feel good. Sola feelings. They are the people that are unwilling to take the truth, the word of God, and have it come to bear on their lives concerning the importance of the church. Because if they did, if they did that, their entire lives would be turned upside down. But it's when you understand the importance of the church, the majesty and the glory that is contained in it, because it is, because we are the body of Christ. It's when you see scripture and submit to it concerning being a Christian, being a member of the body of Christ. It's then that you can understand why the reformers held that there is no salvation outside of the church. Did you catch that? All the reformers believed this. Calvin, Luther, Zwingli, Wycliffe, Huss, they all affirmed and held that outside of the church, there is no salvation, which means if you are not an active member in a church, you are not saved. Even more startling than that is the revelation that as far back as 300 AD, this was the teaching of the church. Cyprian of Carthage coined this phrase, extra ecclesium nullus solus. And that's Latin for outside of the church there is no salvation. Even more provocatively, he said, he cannot have God as father who does not have the church as mother. And this became the official stance of the church all the way up to and including the time of the Reformation. Spurgeon once said, the Bible is not the light of the world. Did you catch that? This is from the Prince of Peace. The Bible is not the light of the world. It is the light for the church. But the world does not read the Bible. The world reads Christians. You are the light of the world. But he also warned, a time will come when instead of shepherds feeding the sheep, the church will have clowns entertaining the goats. Jesus is a who and not a what. The disciples and Mary saw him, but they didn't see him until they understood this. The spirit is a who and not a what. The church was bought by the blood, but regenerated and lighted and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And the church is a who and not a what. It is, we are the body of Christ, shining his light, proclaiming his truth, and partnering in his minister of reconciliation. Do you think, do you actively think, do you really think that God gave the church to the world and then expect him 
to be the one speaking to them. Do you actively think that, that that's how people get saved? You hope that. That's why we love to hear those stories from Iran about people having dreams about Christ and getting saved that way. Because that alleviates us from the ministry of reconciliation. But how is that working out in our nation? We have been reconciled in and through the triune God, for and by him. This is his body. We are his arms. We are his legs. And we are his mouth in this world. Saints, let us see Jesus as a who and not a what. Let us see the spirit as a who and not a what. And let us see this body as a who and not a what. And let us do this all for our good, but more importantly, for his glory. Let's pray.